welcome to the uh, Steps 8 and 9 workshop. Um, and there will be an Ask It basket that will be uh, passed. My name is Bonnie. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Hi, everybody. Um, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, before we get started, we ask that all cell phones and other electronic devices be turned off at this time. And to protect our anonymity, no photography or visual recordings are allowed. Uh, the opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA member members and do not represent Region 2 or OA as a whole. Uh, I already mentioned the Ask It Fast will be passed uh, for questions and answer portion of this meeting. Uh, this meeting is being taped, and if you enjoy this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tape table to order copies of this workshop or any other meeting. They are available on CD or as an electronic download. Um, let's see. The format of this meeting is as follows. Two speakers will share for 25 minutes each, followed by 25 minutes of questions and answers. The topic for this session, as I mentioned, is steps eight and nine. And our first speaker today is Susan. So please help me in welcoming Susan. Did the timekeeper for this meeting come in? Okay, I'll be timekeeper. Thank you. What kind of morning would you like, Susan? We've got five minutes. How about a ten and then a five? A ten and then a five. Yeah. Okay. Hi, everybody. My name is Susan. I am a compulsive eater. I am a compulsive overeater. I'm all kinds of compulsive eaters. Uh, what I think is I'm supposed to qualify for one to two minutes and then speak for the rest of the time on steps eight and nine, dealing with the men. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, let's see, I came into Overeaters Anonymous in July of 2007. I was a desperate, deeply unhappy woman, uh, very angry, very pissed off, and completely bewildered how I got up to 233 pounds again. And so I've been here almost three years. I have a recommitted abstinence date of May 2008, so I have a little more than two years of recommitted abstinence. I am 80 pounds less than my top weight right now and 20 pounds more than my bottom weight. So for me, there is a little over a 100-pound weight difference between my low and my high. Um, I was able to get abstinent right away. Um, as I say, I'm a member of Overeaters Anonymous, and I work the HOW program, which is a focus group of OA. And in HOW, I was able to get abstinent pretty quickly and stay abstinent for about eight months. And since I have a recommitted abstinent date, you know I had at least one slip, and my slip was with alcohol. There's no alcohol allowed on the HAL program. And when I discovered that alcohol is a gateway drug into the food for me, I realized that I had yet another problem. So uh, the reason I am abstinent today is because I'm also sober today. For me, those things go hand in hand. 
Um, I would say that compulsive overeating is a fatal disease, and I know if I wasn't here, I would be on my way to uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, and probably death. Um, before I got here, my doctor told me that I was pre all those things, and if I didn't do something, I was going to end up on serious meds sooner rather than later. So, as I say, I walked into the HOW program in, uh, here in San Mateo that Saturday morning 10 a.m. meeting is my home group, and I am very, very lucky to be here. Overeaters Anonymous has given me a spiritual plan and a way to live so that I can not just get abstinent, but so I can stay abstinent. My story is I've lost the same 80 pounds five or six times. Every diet I was ever on worked for me. I lost the weight, you know, after a year or however long it took to lose it. And I always thought if I was thin, I would be happy and all my problems would go away. And that is not my experience. What happened is I got thin, I felt better physically, and I had all the same problems I had when I was fat. And I was really pissed off about that. So um, I have to say that on the subject of steps eight and nine, I've gotten a great deal of help for my program out of working these steps in particular. Um, the three years I've spent in OA has really been a process of being willing to uncover, discover, and discard. Being willing to uncover what's really going on with me. Being willing, willing to discover the difference between what is real and what is not. And then being willing to discard the behavior that's not working for me. And there was a lot of it. So I've had to learn who I really am in this program. And I have had to be willing to share that with other people which is not easy for me. I was a big-time isolator, and if you had told me several years ago that I would be standing at a podium speaking to a group of people on any topic, I would have laughed because it's not who I was. So I've changed a lot thanks to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I always need to know, tell me again why I have to do this work. You know, steps eight and nine looks like a lot of work to me. Remind me again why this is necessary. Remind me again why I need to do this. Both the AA 12 and 12 and the OA 12 and 12 say about the same thing about what these steps are for and why we need to work them. And the answer is, step eight is the beginning of the end of isolation. It's the beginning of the end of isolation from our fellows, from other human beings, and also from God. Uh, when I got here, I thought I had a faith, uh, although I was what you call observant, I really didn't have a sense that God was for me and not against me, which I have today. Uh, I use the word God for my higher power. You know, obviously in this program, you, you define your own concept of what higher power is. Some people have a problem with the word God. So if you do, just push the switch button and fill in the name that you prefer. Okay. Um, so step eight and step nine are concerned with personal relations. Um, most compulsive eaters, most compulsive overeaters, including myself, I was so busy stuffing my feelings with food, I didn't want to be here, I didn't want to feel anything, which is why I ate so much. Most of us, when we get here, we're not really aware of how much we've isolated ourselves. I can look back over my life and I can see eight to ten year cycles where I would wake up one morning and go, my God, I'm 80 pounds overweight, how did that happen? I would go on a diet, I would lose the weight, 
I would get a better job, I would find a man or relationship, and then my life would continue to go downhill as I would eat my way back up to my high weight. I did that again and again and again. So when I got here and I got abstinent, I knew for me that was not the end of the game. In fact, when I went on maintenance, I've been on maintenance two and a half years now, I was terrified. I'd been there so many times. I thought, oh, I've been here before and I was afraid of failing and the love in this in these rooms is what kept me coming back to meetings and what kept me being willing to work these steps and being willing to try again so I have to say that the food problem was solved by getting abstinent at least temporarily but was not solved with the rest of me that was really the problem and working steps eight and nine gave me the ability to deal with those feelings and with the rest of it so that I could be with other people and be comfortable in my own skin, which was certainly not true for me in the years that I was eating. Um, so if we're going to remain abstinent, we have to learn better ways of dealing with other people. And the truth is, I have to find a way to live where I feel joy in my life, where I feel happiness to be here. If I'm miserable, what is the point of being thin, you know? If I'm to be abstinent, I have to find a way to be happy in my abstinence, or I know it won't last, and also, why bother, you know? That's really the deal. So, step eight is a two-part process. The first part is to make a list in writing of all the persons we have harmed. Oh, okay. I thought, gee, that was awful. Finished. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't know why I did that. Okay. And it, sometimes it's hard to tell who should be on that list. For most of us, if you've done a four-step, you have your A-step list. If you ripped up your four-step and stopped on it or you burned it, you might have to resurrect some of those names for your A-step list. But it's not all that hard to do. And the second part of the eighth step is to be willing to make amends to those people we've harmed. And I want to talk a minute about the word, what the word amends means. To me, when I got here, first of all, I thought I had to work these steps once and I'd be done and I'd be fixed. And the second thing I thought was make amends meant say, gee, I'm sorry I did that. And that is not what the amends means. What the amends means, I've come to understand through working these steps, the amends means that I change. I change my behavior, I change my attitude, and I change my perception. My perspective on life must change for a true amends to really work. That's the bottom line for the amends for me. So I want to give an example because it's really hard to sometimes get these concepts without an example. Um, as I mentioned, I came into OA in early July 2007, and the woman I'd been working for for about 10 years retired at the end of July 2007. And she almost fired me before she retired, and I had a huge resentment and anger against her. And I realized when I came to OA, part of why I was eating was over fury against this boss. And so I got abstinent that first month, and just being abstinent, I was able to see my part in that relationship. I worked for her for 10 years. The first couple years I worked for her, we got along fine, and then I had a medical problem. I had a TIA, which is a trans-ischemic attack. It's like a precursor of a stroke. The carotid artery, which runs, you've got four of them, I think, two up either side and two up the back. 
the inner tube of the carotid artery collapsed on me and I had some, you know, problems. I was out of commission for about a week and a half and I probably made the mistake of telling her much too much of what was going on with me. Brain damage was one of the possibilities and although it was ruled out in my case, I have the same brain now I had before, and there's a frightening thought. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, she didn't treat me the same after I had the TIA. And I went into a real resentment and anger. It took a while for me to figure out what was going on, but I could tell that there was a shift in our relationship. And she didn't trust me in the way she did before. I wasn't given the same difficulty of work, you know, there's a list. And I can now see that the amount of resentment and anger I had for her at that time led immediately into a real downward slide in my disease of compulsive overeating. There's a connection between feeling that anger and resentment and not getting it out and the upsurge of the eating, for lack of a better word. And for me, that was certainly true. So she retired, and I thought, oh, thank God, I'll never see that woman again. And the way to make amends to her is do the best job I can for the next boss. That's what I thought. So I did that. And in working the steps over that year with my sponsor, I discovered that I still had resentment and anger towards her. And my sponsor said, well, you're going to have to start praying that resentment prayer. And in the beginning, I was not willing, but I did it anyway. That's the one where you pray for everything you want for yourself for this person that, you know, all the happiness you want for yourself be given to that person and that everything that you possibly could want for yourself could be given for that person. So I prayed that prayer. I also prayed the robe of light prayer for her, which is, God, I wrap myself in a robe of light made up of the love, power, and wisdom of God, not only for my own protection, but so that all who come in contact with it may be drawn to God and healed. I prayed those two prayers, and then my sponsor said, what is it you really want for yourself? What I really want for myself is for God to wrap his arms around me, put my feet on the path, and lead me home. So she said, well, you're going to have to start praying that for her. So I did. And I think the instructions on the resentment prayer, you're supposed to pray it for like two or three weeks. Well, it took three or four months. And initially, I was not sincere, but I did it anyway. And eventually, I was neutral. Instead of being angry, I had reached a kind of neutrality. And then after about three or four months, it just lifted. I didn't even know when. And I didn't have that anger and that resentment for her any longer. Um, I was blown away by that. One day, as these things must happen, she called where I work and asked to speak to the current boss. And he was in the bathroom or something. And so she said, well, I'll just talk to you for a few minutes if that's all right. And I went, my God, this is a God moment if ever there was one. So I was able to make my amends to her. I said not only how sorry I was for my behavior, but that I could see that my behavior was hurtful to her and harmful to her. And I wanted her to know that I, not only could I see it, but that I had changed my behavior and that I was doing the best possible job for the current person because I really couldn't make it up to her. And uh, I think I also told her I was working a 12-step program and it was Overeaters Anonymous. And to my astonishment, she started to cry and she said, oh, Susan, I'm so happy for you. I've been praying for you all this time. <laughs> blown away because I thought I was doing this by myself. You know, I thought it was just me in a little room by myself. 
that was amazing. And that's been several years now. And she comes into the workplace periodically. And we have a very easy, very pleasant relationship. And if you had told me before program that that would have changed, I would not have believed you. So that's a, an example of how step eight and nine has worked in my life. Um, thank you. Uh, the other part of step eight that this is from the OA 12 and 12, and I love this part. It says, if we're going to remain abstinent, which is, of course, my major problem in life, how to keep this abstinent that I have, we have to find a better way of dealing with people, and we have to do things that bring us joy rather than pain. And it talks about here we meet guilt head on and get rid of it. Here we learn about the healing power of forgiveness. Well, that worked for me on the last one. So I was willing to try it again. It's important that we make changes. Um, this one is about my husband. Uh, this is kind of hard to talk about because it's kind of still in process and the only part of the miracle has happened and I hope there's more miracle to come, but of course I don't know. One thing I've learned in the rooms of OA is that I do the footwork, I do the next right thing, and I leave the outcome up to God. I have no control over the outcome. And I have, a, I have a, a new boss or a new employer, and it's not me. And when I'm able to do that, my life goes much, much better. I've been married about eight years, and my husband's a diabetic. And when we got married, I insisted he get Kaiser, which he did. And then I followed him around and nagged him into keeping his blood sugar under control. And for the first several years of our marriage, he did much better. Then I got into recovery, and I realized I didn't want to be a cop. I wanted to be a woman with like a grown man for a husband. I didn't really want a child. If I'd wanted children, I would have had them. <laughs> so I said to him, I'm in recovery now. You're on your own, Bubba. You're an adult man. You can deal with this diabetes stuff. You know what to do. He said, thank God. I'm really tired of you nagging me. It remains to be seen if you really mean that the nagging will cease. I certainly hope so. So anyway, I, I got into recovery and I had my own fish to fry and I, et cetera. What's happened is that uh, recently he's been diagnosed with a tumor on his right kidney and he has chronic kidney disease stage three, which is not something you wake up with this morning. It's been coming on for 25 years and it's, the doctor said it's a result of smoking, out of control diabetes and high blood pressure. And so... We're sitting in the office of the kidney specialist, and she has on the screen his blood sugar numbers from 2001, and I can see the low numbers at the height of my nagging, and I can see where his numbers took off when I stopped nagging. And I was just swamped with guilt. Oh, my God, if I'd only kept nagging, he wouldn't be in this trouble, you know. And I, I was also absolutely furious with him. How could you get in this much trouble? You know, all the feelings, all the emotions came back. And I had to realize that for myself, for myself, the right thing to do was to stop nagging. If I kept nagging that man, we probably wouldn't be married right now. So that's the truth. And one of the things that came out of this for me, my sponsor said this to me. She said, Susan, you have to grant him the dignity of making his own choices and living his life. Actions have consequences. Allow him the dignity of taking responsibility for his actions. And I thought, oh, that's what I learned in a way. 
When I walked into that Saturday morning meeting at 233 pounds, the people in that meeting gave me the dignity of the responsibility for my own choices that had brought me where I was at that moment. They shared about what worked for them. Not one of those people said to me, my God, you're fat, how did you get in so much trouble? You know? <laughs> not one person judged me. Not one person said, how could you have been so stupid? And I look back over my life and I think of all the times when people looked at me and they would say things like, you have such a pretty face, it's too bad you're so heavy, and things like that, you know. And I realized I needed my, I owed my husband an amends for the way that I had been thinking about him. So I went and talked to him about this, that, you know, he, he is certainly entitled to have lived his life the way he wanted to. And then I had this insight that the guilt I had been feeling underneath that guilt was absolute fury that my efforts at control did not work. And I was really furious because here I am, exhibit A, in a way. He's seen how good I've been doing. Why didn't he follow along with my fabulous example? He did not. And then I had to realize when I was in the worst of my eating, could I have done anything about it? No. It's an addiction. It's an out-of-control addiction, you know. If he could do better, he would do better. So the deal is that... Uh, he's having surgery on June 22nd, and we don't know if it's cancerous or not. And we also don't know. He has 40% of his kidneys right now. If he loses one, he probably will end up on dialysis. Maybe not. Maybe the one remaining kidney is doing all the work. We don't know. Part of the difficulty here is not knowing the outcome and just sitting with the knowledge that, you know, it could be this or it could be that. And... um I'm choosing today to pray, to accept whatever happens, to do the footwork of what I can do to be supportive, which is working my program so I don't dump all my stuff on him. And the more I do that, the happier we are. Uh, Somebody said to me, oh, did he come with you this year? Because last year he came, or the last San Jose convention he came and complained about the food. So, you know, they wondered, one, would he be willing to come back? And two, was he going to eat dinner? And the answer is no, because he's at home. So um, I have to say that, especially for the thing around my husband, grant him the dignity of making the choices for his life and take responsibility for the choices I make for my life. That is a direct result of step eight and step nine work for me. And it's really made a difference in my life. The... uh, Last thing I have to say, this certainly is not original with me. I heard this somewhere, and I can't remember where I heard it. And what I used to believe is that if I'm honest towards you, you will be honest towards me. If I'm loving towards you, you will be loving towards me. If I'm respectful towards you, you will be respectful towards me. That's not the way it works. That is not the way it works. What I found is... If I'm honest towards you, I become an honest person. If I'm loving with you, I become a loving person. If I'm respectful with you, I become a respectful person. So it's not about me doing or being in a way so that you will do or be in a way. It's not about that. It is about working these steps and the answer is inside. The answer is inside. I believe... 
Each one of us has a spark of the divine within us, and it had been smothered by my compulsive overeating disease. Now that I'm in recovery, that celestial fire has to be tended. It has to be fed so that it will grow eventually into a real desire to live the right way. There's a reason for working steps eight and nine. With both the experience around anger and resentment with my old boss and how they lifted, and the experience, the transformation of how I look at my husband's illness, um, both of those really have allowed my heart to crack open and to let the love of other people come in and have allowed me to be a more loving person. And I learned that in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Uh, I'm going to now start the Ask It Basket. That'll just keep going around. And we want to uh, welcome our next speaker, uh, which is who is Abigail. Thank you. Um, I always like to look at pictures, so... Um, I um, thank you very much, Susan. That was very inspirational and helpful for me. I um, really appreciate what you had to say. I, um, I don't know if this is okay. So, again, I'm going to qualify and tell a little bit about my story and then talk about steps eight and nine. Um, I came to program 22 years ago here, actually, in Palo Alto. And... Um, I um, I think I've always been a compulsive overeater. I there's a, one of the photographs of me um, in love with an ice cream cone while my mother and my sister experience a hug and a moment of familial pleasure. <laughs> um, and the look on my face may say it all to those compulsive overeaters. I think I'm four or five in that picture. Um, I remember there was a um, a lock on the freezer for me, which of course I learned to pick. And um, I would go in and take one of the cookies out and eat it and then rearrange them so you wouldn't notice. And then, of course, I couldn't stop at one because I'm compulsive. And I would go back and I'd have another one. I'd rearrange them. I'd go back and have two and rearrange them. And then at some point I couldn't rearrange them anymore, so I'd just have to eat all of them and dispose of the box. <laughs> and um, there was a lot of conflict in my family about my weight and trying to get me to lose weight and control my weight. And I can see now some of my parents' fear about what would happen to me, but it, of course, ended up being just a terrible, terrible power struggle and reinforced all the feelings of shame and self, low self-esteem and everything else that comes along with this disease anyway. So um, I eat out of garbage cans. I will take food. I'll clear the table, and then I'll take the food, and I eat all the remnants from people's plates. I'll eat all the fat that was left trimmed off of the meat in the kitchen. I stole food in the dorms. I, my first job, um, I would leave work and go to the grocery store, but I couldn't let people see how much I was buying because Lord knows they would never guess from my size that I was eating more food. And so I would steal food from the grocery store so they wouldn't see what I was eating. And um, I, I just, I'm compulsive about food. It's an obsessive compulsive disorder for me. I feel like completely the case. 
and I think it also is wedded with depression for me. I came to OA, I got absent right away, I tried to work the steps, and um, I tried to write step four and I couldn't. And as many people were free to tell me at the time, which I resented the hell out of, was if you have trouble with one step, you have to go back to the one before, which would be step three. And um, I ended up spiraling into an uh, emotional relapse, but not a physical relapse, but that's that. I, I'd come and I'd done accident and I'd lost a bunch of weight and that was great. But without the food and without the steps, my depression was unmedicated and I spiraled into depression. And that was what eventually forced me to a bottom low enough to be willing to work the steps. I lived in Davis's time. I asked everyone to sponsor me. It was a pretty small group of OA. And either they'd said no or we tried it and hadn't worked out and was left with the last person who I didn't like. And um, she agreed to sponsor me. She worked a very strong Al-Anon program, which was probably completely necessary for someone to sponsor me. And um, I never learned to like her. And um, I don't know where she is. She moved on. We never get any contact. But she helped me work the steps. And um, every time I'd work a step, I would feel like that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I felt like I'd turn around and look at the next one and think, oh, my God, that's even bigger and harder. But... Um, you know, it's been 22 years, and I've worked steps numerous times. A lot of things have happened to me over those years. It's hard to summarize them all. So what I want to do now is just do, an, you know, instead of all the ins and outs and details of what I did with the steps over all these years, I'd just like to do an overview of the steps, put step eight and nine in context, and talk about my last four steps I've just written and the last set of amends I've just done, the most current ones. Um, so my understanding is that we have a phenomenon of craving, right, that I crave the food, and when I eat that food, it induces more of a craving. And so the answer is simple, don't eat that food, except for I have a mental obsession that drives me back to eat that food over and over again. So where for a normal person, they can just like, well, you know, sugar's a problem for me, I don't eat sugar. I can't do that. And um, I would say, make the analogy, that there's some faulty wiring in my brain or bad chemistry, and... There's some bad connection that when you just, I don't know why, I just shoot over and over again, food, 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 and think about it all the time. And that's where my brain is wired, and it's, it's abnormal, it's a problem. And the steps are designed to remove that obsession, to change that wiring, to change my chemistry, to give me a spiritual awakening or spiritual experience. Any of those words are all synonymous, in my opinion. Um, the one that I think works the best for me is the one in Appendix 2, where they say a spiritual awakening is defined as a personality change sufficient to bring, bring about recovery from, in their case, alcoholism, in my case, compulsive eating. So, step two is saying I'm willing, you know, I came to believe a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, and that's not an action step. It's really a commitment step. And it's part of step three, which says I'm going to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to that care. And that decision, in my opinion, is equivalent to steps four through nine. So step three really means I've committed to doing four through nine. And four through nine, in my opinion, and in my experience, is what changes the chemistry, changes the wiring, gives you the spiritual experience, gives you the spiritual awakening, personality change, whatever words you want to use for it, that's what those steps are designed to do. And um, 
I inventory my character defects and I ask for them to be removed in six and seven, but it is my opinion and my experience that those character defects are not removed completely until I make amends for the damage I have done to myself and to others because of those defects of character. So steps eight and nine, in my opinion, um, are the culmination of that inventory and of that desire to have the spiritual awakening, the process that induces that. So what I'd like to do is just talk about my last four step and the amends I've made as a consequence of that so I can maybe demonstrate some of that. And um, so in my last four step, what became very clear to me, and this is going to come as a real shock to you guys, is that um, I really don't like it when I don't get my way. <laughs> I have a really hard time with that. And um, uh, it can come out, I have really low impulse control. And so when I don't get my way, I get very angry and irritable and snappy and difficult with people who I think will tolerate it. So that means people who have less power than me, like a clerk in a store, or I'm a teacher like my students, or someone who's very, very tolerant like my husband. I also have a ex-sponsor in the room, like a sponsor who's very tolerant and had to listen to a lot of that crap for a long time. So um, that's one way that it manifests. And the other is that I will lie and cheat and steal and manipulate to get my way. And um, at the heart of the matter, I would say it's fundamentally an immaturity that I've not fully grown up, that part of being a child is wanting your own way. And that's normal in children. But adults are supposed to learn how to handle it when they don't get their way. And I don't. And I think the other part of it is this fear that who and what I am is not enough. So this is the character defect. And when I went to make amends for this, um, unfortunately for me, or fortunately for me, however you want to look at it, I had moved many times in the 20-something years I've been in program. And how could I not have lost my very first step eight list, which had amends on it I had not made 20 years ago. How did I manage not to lose this document that pointed so clearly to some very unpleasant amends that I really didn't want to make? So um, I'll talk about those in just a second. So um, the first one on that list was um, what I had done in college, which I had cheated multiple times on exams because... I was a good student, I was smart, and I wasn't going to get the grade. I, either I was going to fail the class, there was a, because of depression, I stopped going to chemistry class, and actually enough, my grade plummeted, and, uh, or I wasn't going to get the grade I wanted, and I didn't want to do the work I needed to do to get the grade I wanted, and so I cheated, lied, manipulated, whatever you want to say, to get what I wanted. And um, that is... Phil was still there on my amends list. So um, I talked to my sponsor about it, and uh, we talked about the harm I had done to others. And um, he pointed out that primarily I had harmed myself by reinforcing the belief that, two beliefs, one, that I wasn't okay. I, what if I fail the class? What does that mean about my self-worth? And two, that I had the right to do whatever I wanted to get what I wanted. So I ended up calling the dean who was head of the academic honor committee, and she was plummeted. She had not had one of these phone calls before. And um, so I ended up writing, I think just the easiest way to deal with this man, so I'm just going to read you the letter I wrote to the school newspaper. I ended up contacting the student editor, this young pup, and um, uh, who was also a little flummoxed. And um, so I ended up writing a letter, and I'll just read it to you. And... Um, 
I, I think the reason I want to do this is that there are, there are different kinds of amends, and some of them, as the big book points out, need to be public. It's not enough to apologize to somebody that uh, the harm I did was not really just to myself, or to, it was to the community I was part of. So um, I graduated from Smith more than 20 years ago, an active compulsive overeater, binging my way through school full of fear and self-doubt. I am now a member of Overeaters Anonymous, abstinent and healing from this eating disorder. This includes going back to make amends for the wrongs I've committed over my life. In college, I was gripped by the fear that if I did badly at school, that my parents, friends, and professors would all look down on me and reject me. People had to love me or else I would be unlovable. Unfortunately, this was coupled with a second erroneous belief. I had the right to do whatever I wanted to take care of my fears and needs. And so I cheated on several final exams. As part of OAs and AAs, 8th and ninth step, we go back to make amends to the people and institutions we have harmed. Of course, the primary damage I did was to myself. By lying and cheating, I reinforced the belief that my true self was not good enough. However, I also harmed the college and the academic honor code, so I'd like to offer this apology to all the students who get up every morning and face their fears and struggles with integrity. What I did was wrong, and I'm sincerely sorry for undercutting the moral fabric of the college and the signed class of 1986. And um, part of the reason that I'm really glad I made that amends is that I went to a woman's college, and I was a compulsive overeater, and eating disorders are rampant at women's colleges. And I know that I was not the only person. I didn't have the words for it, but I certainly knew there were women who were throwing up every day in the bathroom in 1980s, in the early 80s. And I know there are certainly women who are doing that every day right now and eating and binging. And the amends I made hopefully would provide someone to know about OA that wouldn't otherwise have known about it. So um, that was one way that that character defect of wanting my way manifested. And I'm a teacher at a college now, and I see students all the time whose deep, deep fear that they aren't good enough leads them to do all sorts of crazy things. And I am uniquely placed to say to them, you're making a mistake because you are not your grade. You are not your performance in this school. So there's also living amends that I have to make to people who are in my position. Okay, the other amends I'd like to make, talk about is this thing of wanting my own way. I would describe as kind of this, uh, what do you say, like this emotional colic. Like um, I had this, you know, babies have this immature digestive tract. As the gas pains pass through, they scream and yell because it's just so painful to them. And as you mature, your intestinal system can handle that. And somehow my emotional digestive system never matured to the point where I could handle the anger and frustration is part of normal adult life where we just don't get things the way we want them. That just happens. And um, that rage and anger is really part of who I, I am or was. And so I also found on that four step list the uh, amends I need to make for when I babysat when I was in high school, 14 or 15, for a neighbor. It was a couple who lived up the street. And... Um, I would babysit one afternoon a week for them so that they could be at work. And um, I loved this woman. I just really respected her. There was something about her smile and her laughter. I just really, she, she represented all the motherly kindness I did not get from my mother. And um, when I was babysitting, the baby would get upset, and I would be so enraged. I would grab the child, and I would squeeze him, and I would yell, and I would scream, and I was, I was out of control. And I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I knew that it was just the worst kind of wrong. You know, that this wasn't stealing, this wasn't cheating, this was just bad. 
Um, but I had no way. I didn't know who to turn to for help. I couldn't admit what I was doing. I couldn't tell my mother or my father, and I couldn't tell this woman who I admired so much. And I felt like I was betraying her. And um, I don't remember how the relationship ended. I was, of course, binging my brains out on the food in the refrigerator. So as a psychiatrist and a psychologist, they might have noticed that something was wrong in the household. <laughs> and, um, and so um, I just, I, I don't remember what happened. I did stop babysitting for them. And, um, <laughs> which signs it, okay. <laughs> and um, I do like the um, final one. There's a band with orange that Stop. <laughs> like, uh, uh, in hot pink. Anyway, um, so I um, found her remarkably easy to find, this woman. For, I'm 46, so this is, oh, um, you know, 30 years ago, because she had a talk show as a radio psychologist. And so um, that only made it better. So um, I ended up calling her, and um, they did a message for her, and she called me back. And I told her what I had done and that I was, you know, my sponsor sort of, you know, the, says the parts of the demands are uh, to admit that what I did was wrong. And that I sincerely regret it, um, that I commit to never doing this kind of action in the future and to try and make restitution if I can. So, you know, I, I explained to her what I was doing and why I was doing it. And um, she was still the very kind and loving person she had been something years ago when I had admired her so much and she was very forgiving and kind and the shame that I feel about what I did is not completely gone but it is alleviated in large part by being willing to confront it and say that whether I admit it or not I did it and what the program gives me is the power to make amends for it and really in this world that's a very uh, unique gift that we can go back and make restitution because everybody makes mistakes and does bad things in their life. And most people just suffer the consequences and bury it. And if they're not addicts like we are, they don't have to deal with it. But it's not like I don't think it takes a toll on them. I think it does. It just takes a harder toll on us addicts than it does on them. And so this leads me to the final amends I want to talk about, which is to my husband. And in the process of making amends to this woman and her child, I was able to really finally admit that what I, you know, I, I, I could see that I would take out my anger at my husband, who's very tolerant and a type 1 diabetic, and um, very tolerant, also I also have nags, and um, I, he, tolerates it. He is so kind and loving and patient with me. He is one of the nicest people I have ever met in my entire life. And I am blessed that he loves me and married me. But I don't treat him as well as I would like to because he's so kind and loving. And I realized I was tired of apologizing to him and then doing it again, that that was not okay and that my amends was a commitment to change. And so in this case, I did not speak to him at all about it. And I realized that I was a bully to him because he would put up with it. And I wanted more than anything not to do that again. 
And a couple things happened as a result of that realization and that commitment. One was that I realized that this was how my sister treated me, who's pretty abusive to me, as it turns out. And I could see that she has the same lack of tolerance for not getting her own way and the same low impulse control, but she doesn't have a program. And so much of my anger and resentment towards her just melted away when I could see how I acted in this manner to my husband. And the other is that for reasons I cannot explain to you, that in this process of doing step eight and nine, that that action towards my husband has been lifted since when I made this commitment in December. And I can't tell you why and I can't tell you how. And I'm sure psychologists and theologians could explain to you why steps four through nine work and why this process changes our personality and changes our spiritual awakening. And I don't know. All I know is that it has been my experience that it does. And so um, I would just like to say as my conclusion that what's been said to me is that if I'm having trouble with food, if I'm compulsively overeating, whether I have been absent for a long time discovering new problems or I'm still in my food or I'm gaining weight or whatever my problems might be, I'm still throwing up, whatever they are, there are two potential problems. One is I'm still eating something or a behavior that's triggering my craving. Or two, I need to work steps four through nine to get relief and get spiritual a spiritual experience that the program promises. Or, of course, option three, both. Um, <laughs> and so I, I would just like to say that I'm, I'm kind of, uh, people who I sponsor know this, that I really am a believer in steps four through nine. And, um, and by the way, I'm an atheist agnostic, so, you know, there's all sorts of complexities with that. Um, but I feel like when they say don't stop before the miracle, I would like to say translation steps eight and nine. Because that's the culmination of the spiritual experience the steps are trying to give us. And so I'm really honored to be here, and I um, am really glad that I had the chance to share and hear Susan. And so thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Abigail. Thank you, Susan. Um, the speakers will now draw questions from the Ask It basket for the remainder remainder of the meeting. So, I is the basket somewhere? Thank you. Okay, the question is, um, Susan, please repeat the details of the three steps below. Uncover, discover, and discard. Uh, thank you. Well, um, for me, the what it is, uncover, uncover what's really going on with me right now. Often I have a feeling, and I don't know what it is. Before program, I had a feeling, and it took me a couple months to figure out what that feeling is. Now that I've been in a way for a while, 
I'm amazed to say that I can have a feeling and know what it is on the same day. For me, that's enormous progress. So uncover means to discover what's going on with me, whether it's a feeling. If I'm in traffic and I'm very tense and I'm furious at the other drivers, usually it's not got anything to do with the traffic. There's something else going on with me underneath. So uncover whatever might be happening. Discover the difference between what is real and what is not. That seems to be the cornerstone of my program. I had a lot of trouble before a program really knowing what reality was. I was so uncomfortable in my life and in my skin that I used to make up stories about how I hoped things were going, you know? And often I, I knew it wasn't true, but sometimes I liked the story so much I would end up believing it. So for me, the difference between what is real and what is not is very, very important. And somebody once said to me, you know, I've heard you speak more than once and your story changes. <laughs> and I have to say, yes, it does. The facts of my story don't change. It's the same 80 pounds that I've lost five or six times. That's the fact. What has changed is my understanding. You bet it has changed, and I hope so, because before I got here, I was in big trouble with lack of understanding, you know. So for me, that's very important. The, to uncover what's really going on with me, to discover what is real and what is not, and the discard part is to discard what is not working. The big book talks about we're all born with instincts, and these are the things we do lives, you know. I learned very early on that I was safer if I isolated. People piss me off. If I don't spend time with them, I'm not as pissed off. That was the best solution I could come up with before a program, okay? It doesn't work in life. You know, we all have to be around people all the time. I want to be able to be around people and enjoy them. So I've had to discard that isolating behavior, not totally, but in large part. So I hope that answers the question. Uh, I'm going to keep uh, passing the basket, and I don't know if everybody's gotten it, but this way, if anybody, you know, still has a burning desire. Um, okay, this one is, what was the most scary and difficult amends you have made, and how did you feel afterwards, and what happened? Ooh. So, <laughs> actually, I'd have to say that though you might think the one I gave you was the scary and worst, it was not. Um, <laughs> Because um, what was really awful was even having been in program many years, when I got the job I currently have, I lied on my resume. Because I'm a liar. I am a liar. That is my natural state because who and what I am does not seem good enough for me. And so I had to go to the college president and tell him that. And that was on my never list. And... Um, <laughs> And um, he's a very odd man, <laughs> and uh, he didn't really know quite what to make of it again. And, um, you know, I, I decided to make it because, um, why did I decide to make it? Because I just trusted the process. I just trusted the process, even though I thought I would die if I did it, and I almost threw up in the waiting room waiting to go into his office. And um, I, um, <laughs> and then, but what was great is that he's this very strange man, so he says to me, um, Oh, well, that's okay. What I lied about was not that big an issue, really, from his perspective. I had inflated my actions. And then he proceeded to tell me the things that I had done since I'd been hired that he was unhappy with me about. 
But you see, I have tenure. So, um, <laughs> so at first I was really upset. And then I laughed and I thought, I don't actually really respect this man. He's not somebody who I really think a lot of his opinion. And so why am I upset that he critiques me about things that I feel fine about having done while I was here? Whereas the thing I really feel bad about is the thing I made amends for. So um, I felt elated afterwards. <laughs> and really amused, too, by my, by like, just how, and then, it was in the height of the whole bird flu thing, so I just to shake my hand, he's like, well, I hope you don't have the flu. I mean, it's just like this surreal experience. So all I can say is that sometimes amends are really bizarre and very funny. <laughs> Uh, question is, if I am resentful towards six people at work, do I need to say the prayer for all of them? <laughs> it's, it's hurting me to be angry. Well, I'm sure it is. You know, six people, it would hurt me too. Um, one thing I have learned about steps eight and nine is it's a process, and we don't have to do it all at once. That's the good news. Um, when I was going through this, I picked the one big thing that was causing me to overeat, which was the resentment against that old boss. And in a way, I was lucky because there was just one of her. If you have a whole department that you're angry at, I would say that it's a process. I would start with some quiet meditation and some writing about, you know, on a piece of paper, all six names, what each person has done, my part, if you can see that. And then I would say pick the most egregious offender and start with that person, praying for that person. And it's a process, as you know, we've been talking about in here, of, it's a journey is really what it is. Eventually, you will work your way through all six. Or what's happened with me in my life, by the time I get around to person number three, I've forgotten what I was mad at, at persons four and five and six. That may happen, you know. That may happen. How did you decide when making an amends would cause harm? And the person thinks that you know, wondered whether it would have caused the mother harm to tell her about how I damaged her child. And I, I don't know that I have a good answer for this. Um, I waited a long time to make that amends, and I talked about it with a number of different people, and I talked over with my sponsor. And one of the things that my sponsor and I talked about was that I couldn't remember whether I had shaken the child or not which could have been much more serious. And it was my deepest fear. And we decided that you don't get to say things like, well, I may or may not have slept with your wife, so I'd like to make amends. That, that, you know, you not say things like that. That was, that was his example. And um, so that I wasn't going to say to her, I may or may not have shaken your child. I, I wasn't, that wasn't, I don't know. I'm, I think even as a 14-year-old, I knew that that was crossing the line that I would, I, I don't think I did. But we can only make amends for what I remember having done, is, was the decision we made. Um, I, I don't know how to decide when making amends will cause harm. I do know that I have sponsors for reasons, and that I trust, they pick people I trust, and that when in doubt, don't. 
is been my motto in the program. If I'm not sure about an action, I just don't do it. And I waited a long time to make this amends. And in the end, what I realized was that I needed to give her the privilege of deciding how she wanted to react to something that had actually happened. Whether or not I told her about it, it really had happened. It was reality. And to not tell her so that she wouldn't be disturbed by it is my, is the kind of thinking that gets me into, it's, well, it's, it's the disease talking. Because things either happen or they don't. Whether I tell the truth about them or I lie about them or we know about them doesn't change whether they happened or not. And everybody deserves, in my opinion, I want the right to make a decision about how I want to respond to things that happened. So I'm not, I don't want people to tell me or not tell me things that think will disturb me. So that, I think, is part of what into my decision to make that amends is that it was uh, respecting her right as a human to make her decision about how she wanted to respond to this, including the fact that, in my mind, she could have done something like press a lawsuit or I, I don't know what. I had to be willing to take those consequences and that... And I was willing to take those consequences. Um, so, um, I mean, the OA 12 and 12 has the most wonderful example of, you know, going to someone and saying, I'm really sorry, I've just hated you all these years. <laughs> but, but I'm going to change now. And I would say that my amends to my sister, who's been very abusive to me, but I have equally just been all, I mean, just screamed and yelled at her and, I have not spoken to her about my anger and judgment to her. What I have done is gotten call our ID. Because if I'm in a spiritual position, then I can give her the love and compassion, the pity, patience, and tolerance, as they say in that four-step prayer, that I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. That's what we pray for people we have resentments for, right? And... Um, when I'm in a spiritually good position, I can do that, and I can have a good conversation with her. And if I'm not, I have no business speaking to her. And she's private name, private number, so if any of you want to call me in your private name, private number, I won't necessarily pick up. So, um, so I just want to know, we can unblock your ID if you want me to pick up the phone, because sometimes I just private name, private number. I'm not in the spiritual position to do that, and I shouldn't. And I've never said anything to my sister about my amends, but I yelled at her, I've judged her, I've been awful to her. It doesn't matter what she's done to me. And it's not one, I think it would harm her for me to speak to her and speak about what the problems were. Um, instead, I just want to treat her with kindness. So. question is, I've heard that to say I'm making amends because I'm in a 12-step program, i.e. because my sponsor told me to, is kind of like cheating. Does it cheapen the sincerity, maybe? It looks like sensitivity, but that can't be right. Does it cheapen the sincerity of the amends? Um, well, I think it really depends on the situation. For myself, with my old boss, um, when I was angry and resentment, I turned to eating in the afternoon, and I stuffed myself with food and sugar and vending machine stuff 
to the extent that I couldn't concentrate and I made mistakes, and she witnessed me do that. And so part of the amends was acknowledging my part to her and um, telling her, since I lost 80 pounds and there was a lot less of me than when she knew me, it felt like that was an okay thing to do for that situation. I understand the question, and I think in certain circumstances, you should not reveal that you're in a 12-step program, and that's why you're making the amends. Again, I would say the meaning of the amends, the word amends, is to change and to have a, a change in attitude, a change in perception. If you're making amends because your sponsor told you to, you do not understand what you're doing. That is not it. That is not what this is about. It has to come from a much deeper place than that. That was a judgmental statement, Susan. Back up. Pause. <laughs> rewind. If you're making amends because your sponsor told you to, I would say that it would help you to go back and revisit steps eight and nine and the purpose of them, that you'll get more out of it if you do it that way. Much better. Much better. <laughs> um, there's, there's a quick question, and then the other one is, how old is the child when this happened? Is it necessary to apologize to her or to him? And uh, a couple of things. One, um, I just want, and I'm just going to say second, amends is not an apology. It is not an apology. And I, I feel very strongly about that. I'm trying to mend a wrong that I did. And apologies are a portion of that, but it, it needs to be much bigger. Um, the second thing is he was an infant, and I, um, part of my amends was asking her what she wanted me to do. Um, I felt that I had betrayed her trust, and I had been very harmful to him, but because he was an infant and because he's now a young man, um, I felt, and I can't quite tell you why, but it felt right, that it was her decision to make about whether I did that with him or not. And so that was what I, part of what I had spoken to her about. So just a small point. There's so many intricacies for men. Um, I'm stuck on making amends. I'm about halfway through, and I haven't done any amends in about three months. I can't seem to get through willingness, and my sponsor's not pushing me very much. What do you suggest? And I'm just going to say, I don't do anything unless it's more painful to be where I am than to go where I'm going. I am pain motivated. <laughs> and so, uh, pain, so pain and fear. Pain and fear. Um, so, well, maybe boredom. Okay. So, um, <laughs> but anyway. So, um, the beauty of this program is that if I am that what I have noticed is my pain threshold is lower than it used to be. It doesn't take as much before I'm in as much emotional and spiritual pain. Like, I can have a slip where I overeat and eat too much at a dinner, and I eat till I'm too full, and part of my absence is not to eat till I'm too full, amongst a bunch of other things. And I'm, like, on my knees. It's like, oh, my God, I need to renew my commitment to my program, and I call in my sponsor, and I'm working the steps, and blah, blah, blah. And, like, you know, I used to eat a pint of ice cream every night. So, and I'd be like, eh, that sort of hurt. So, um, you know, pain threshold gets lower by working the steps and being abstinent. So, I'm just going to say, how much pain do you want? And I feel like it's a mistake when I, as a sponsor, push people to do something. I really do. And it's not that I don't make that mistake, because I do. But that's my codependence. Um, I, I 
Jess would say, if the pain of being where you are or the fear of going back to where you were is enough, pick the easiest one off the list, the least threatening, the most attractive of the unattractive, and start there. Because um, action, another thing I firmly believe is I do not change my thoughts and my feelings first and then my actions. I believe I changed my actions in order to change my thoughts and my feelings. And that's kind of what I think the Steps 12-step program is based on. I think that's on the original idea. I think that's what they're saying. So pick anything. Pick the most minor. And pray for the willingness. We have about five, it's 3.20 and we'll have to wrap up. So we have about five more minutes of questions and answers. Um, one of the questions was about the prayer and I wrote it on the back of the paper. So if it's you, come up afterwards and I'll hand it to you. Uh, this question is, what about the people in your four-step resentment Actually, I can't read the handwriting. That might be ninth step resentment or list. Do you frequently make amends to them as well as to those on your... Oh, I see. What about the people on your fourth step resentment or fears list? Do you frequently make amends to them as well as to those on your ninth step harms list? Well, I would say that when you are working on your eighth step list, one of the things to do, and I would say that do it with a sponsor because I did this with my sponsor and it was really revealing. Not everybody you think belongs on that list really belongs on that list. That's one of the benefits of having a sponsor. They've done this before you. Well, my sponsor had done it before me and it helped me a great deal because some people I thought belonged on that eight step list did not. And for the four step inventory where we break it down into fears, you know, a lot of the um, the pain from that list it has worked itself out by the time we get to steps eight and nine. And if it has not, that is really worth looking at because that's like a red flag right into our innermost being. And if you're lucky enough to have one of those little puppies that's still hanging around, look at that because once you open that door, enormous healing is possible for you, I would say. That's a very sounds odd to say, but that could be a very lucky thing. So I can't really answer that question any more specifically other than to say work with the sponsor and just know that not everything you think belongs on that eight-step list belongs there. Does anybody have any last-minute burning questions? Maybe I should say that in here so the taping can hear. Does anybody have any last-minute burning questions? Okay. Um, I, just, I know it's about making amends, but steps eight and nine cover also forgiveness, like forgiving people. Do any of you have something to add um, as far as when you have, you know, not as many amends to make, but more of forgiving people?
Um, I don't know that I have a lot of that I do in in step four, five, six, and seven, the forgiveness of people. Um, but one thing that I have to, that I'm recently coming to see by listening to some people who've talked about this a lot is that when somebody like my sister treats me badly, I'm not doing her a favor by letting her treat me badly. That I, everybody wants to be the best person they can be. Uh, and by being frightened of her and being her victim, I am harming her as much as she is harming me. And I don't want to perpetuate that dynamic with her because it's bad for her and it's bad for me. So there's an element of forgiveness that's sort of in a backwards direction that many people who do very bad things, that when I don't speak up or stand up or take action, sometimes amends are, is not the amends that you might think it might be saying, well, that's wrong and that's not going to happen again, is actually an amends to some of the people who are doing that. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is that four through nine, as I see my own part in it, like I said with my husband, when I could see what I was doing, I could be forgiving of my sister to see how she did the same, some of the same things. And so really being at peace with my, the good and the bad of who I am helped me be more at peace with the good and the bad of who other people are, none of which means I'm a doormat for them. So I don't know if it. Uh, now is the time to close. Let's thank our speakers and all who have done service. So if we will all stand and make a giant circle, we'll say the, oh, I promise I put my hand in yours.